2: It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's episode, while I'm doing this intro very early in the morning, the sun is only just beginning to rise from northern Saudi Arabia, from Alula. Alula was this great crossroads of ancient history, of trade routes, for instance, the incense trade route. You have ancient civilizations such as the Dadan culture, almost 3000 years old they have some remarkable figurines surviving and these small rock cut tombs too following them you have the more well-known Nabataeans think Petra but also think northern Arabia and here the site of Hegra once again another of these great Nabataean centers renowned for monumental rock cut tombs in the landscape don't you worry Whilst I'm here, I'm getting photos. We're doing videos. You can have a look at this archaeology firsthand through my reels on Instagram or you can just look them up online. The archaeology of this area of northern Saudi Arabia of Alula is sometimes overshadowed. However, it is extraordinary. The landscape is unlike anything I've ever seen. So don't you worry, we're going to be exploring Arabian archaeology and ancient history more in the coming weeks and months on the ancients. I guarantee you that. I've been blown away so far. Now, in the meantime, this episode today, well, it's something completely different. We are going to the Indian subcontinent to talk about something equally fascinating. One of the most extraordinary Bronze Age civilizations in the world. It's called the Harappan civilization. You and me might know it better as the Indus Valley civilization. However, there are some issues with calling it the latter and harappan is probably more appropriate as you're going to hear in today's episode now to give a great overview of the harappan civilization with a particular focus on one key site the site of rakigari well i was delighted to interview dialing in from new delhi the indian archaeologist dr disha aliwalia disha she has recently been on excavation at rakigari we've known each other for a couple of years now And it was wonderful to get her on the podcast. I really do hope you enjoy. And here's Disha. Disha, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
2: You're more than welcome. And you're dialing in from New Delhi. So I love it when we can get someone, especially who's really far away from London, and to talk about something as amazing as this. The Harappan civilization this is such an important part of the Bronze Age story of the world that is, I think, is it fair to say sometimes overlooked compared to the likes of Egypt and, say, Mesopotamia?
3: It is. I mean, um, even in our country, it's overlooked. People, you know, often ask me oh, as to why we don't have pyramids and why we don't have big structures, why are we talking about pottery, and why are we talking about drainage, and its structures, and town planning, and all of that. It's For people, it's just common, it's normal. But in its own sense, you know, indigenously, or organically, this culture has grown. And the culture, as it was evolving through time, it took the shape of a civilization. So it all happened organically in the subcontinent. And it happened due to various factors, like environmental regions, they affected a lot. Lot. different ecologies or harappans there was some uniformity but then there was diversity as well so if you look at the span and the spread of the civilization all of these factors really play an important role and that is what india is today as well if you ever visit india about every two to three kilometers you will find a drastic change be it in the dialect be it in the food habits everything you know these small small minor cultural traits they vary and that's what Harappan civilization is all about.
2: Well I'd definitely love to explore the detail of that variation as you highlighted there and also the great extent of this civilization. But first off, when are we talking, how far back in time are we going when we're talking about the Harappan civilization?
3: There are different phases. So the early farming phase, it defines the beginning of farming and agriculture in the subcontinent. And that sort of starts around 7th millennium BCE. The earlier state is from the side of Mehrgarh. So the civilization does not go that far back in time, but the beginning of the culture, the, the onset of these trades that go on, into being the early Harappan traits that we identify and sort of become this mature Harappan classical characteristics it starts with the early farming phase, which is about 5000 to 6000 BCE. And then you have this regionalization era where you have small like sites like KOTG, Amri, Nal, these sites coming up, they have their own different cultural trades, yet they had their common sort of identity markers, as to say, and then around 3rd millennium BCE, about 2600 BCE, we have the mature Harappan phase, which is the urban phase. So that's when you start seeing cities coming up, you know, small villages becoming major cities, and that is because of the trade. And then about 1900 to 2000 BCE, the Deurbanization slowly starts taking place. So it's a slow process and we do see that in archaeological data as well. So by 201900 you see these this de-urbanization, the sites, the settlements are becoming smaller as opposed to the early phases or the mature Harappan phase. And then you have the late Harappan, which ends by 1500. So if you see by from 5,500 all the way to 1500 BCE, this entire stretch is what is Harappan culture. And that all of it comes under the term Harappan civilization
2: that is such a massive time span to try and get your head around as well, and as you say, you can see that evolution and those different kind of phases of this civilization. I must also ask about the location of this civilization in the Indian subcontinent today because I think it's fair to say particularly in the West we sometimes refer to it by the name more commonly like the Indus Valley civilization Valley. but but why is Harappa more accurate or is this a better name to say when focusing on this bronze age civilization
3: yeah it's a really nice question i think you know i i often get into these conversations with a lot of senior archaeologists because what happens is if you read any paper any research paper academic paper, you will read, the title We read Ender's Site Excavated Blah 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 and in the abstract they will mention Ahrappan Site so there's this confusion and a lot of young archaeologists started to pick up on these two different terms being used for just one civilization so a lot of Questions have been arised in recent past about this term, like whether should we call it Indus Valley Civilization or Harappan Civilization. Or now there is a very different uh, group altogether who wants it to be Indus Saraswati Civilization. I don't want to go into that because it's a very different side of the spectrum altogether, an extreme side. So if we have Indus Civilization on one end, the other end is Indus Saraswati Civilization. At this middle, you have Harappan Civilization. And the reason why... So, what happens is when uh, Harappa was excavated in 1920s, followed by the excavation of Mohenjo-daro, uh, the sites more or less that were explored and excavated were uh, in the Indus Valley, right? So, a lot of exploration were being taken place in that region and slowly and steadily, about uh, 30s and 40s, these archaeologists started plotting more sites on the map. But then in 1947, you have partition of India and Pakistan. All of the sites which were investigated right from 1920s to 1940s were now in newly formed Pakistan. So uh, then the Indian side, the Archaeological Survey of India, the newly sort of formed Archaeological Survey of India, uh, they started reinvestigating uh, you know, this particular issue, they started finding more sites which belong to that cultural period in the Indian domain, which is the eastern domain of the civilization. And they started finding a lot of sites in the states of Punjab, Haryana, Rajasthan. In fact, in Gujarat, Gujarat have large, large number of sites. And after analyzing all of this, once, you know, there was a lot of uh, expedition data that uh, was obtained at the end of many, many projects that were funded by the government, they realized that sites were not limited to just Indus Valley. They are on banks of different rivers. So in Gujarat, you know, it's not only in Kutch, but different parts of Gujarat. You have different uh, areas which were occupied by the Harappans, and even on in Rajasthan, in Punjab, Haryana, so All those Indus is a very big river system. There are a lot of tributaries. We it, it sort of assume that geographically it's giving a very limiting term. So archaeologists decided that let's call and it was not only Indian archaeologists but many archaeologists, even Western scholars, they all sort of decided that let's call it Harappan civilization because Harappa were the first site that was excavated. And as per archaeological contention, usually either we if we don't know what exactly that particular civilization was called, we we would rather either call it, uh, you know, name it after a pottery or any marker ceramic or the site that, uh, you know, where the culture was first discovered. So therefore, the name Harappan civilization came into being. Uh, Then, you know, Pauschal also gave the term Indus age and they are different, different terms given by different scholars at different point of time. Uh, But to me per se, when I'm living in India, Right now, given the kind of political climate, socio-economic climate, conversations around archaeology and also uh, the relationship that we have politically and otherwise with Pakistan. I think Harappan civilization seems to be a very uh, much more accepted sort of or it's not going to give rise to any political controversy, you know, because the moment you say it's inter-civilization, people would now start to say it's no longer in India. Why does it concern us? But whereas large number of sides, actually more sides are on the eastern domain than they are on the western domain. So there is no acceptance to either any of these terms. Uh, I think uh, we need to do that. Uh, Scholars who are working in Harappan civilization, they need to sort of uh, come together and decide as to what term they should be using now. Harappan civilization or Indus. And I think it's all about convenience because the moment you say Indus Valley civilization, people know what you're talking about. Harappan civilization is still, you need to explain them what Harappan civilization is all about. So, yeah.
2: Well it's interesting and it's important to highlight and you know we'll keep using the word Harappan therefore and as you say it is because it is more than just the Indus River Valley as you've highlighted there. I must ask though you did touch on it at the start with the emergence of the Harappan civilization and an indigenous culture but do we know whereabouts the earliest evidence for the Harappan civilization is and do we have any idea where almost like the core of it is and it spreads out from? over the following centuries or how far geographically does the harappan civilization ultimately spread
3: so we know the extent of the civilization we know from makran coast to uh, the banks of yamuna in uttar pradesh and uh, from jammu to Maharashtra. So, this uh, this entire spread which covers different countries, you have Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, and then coming to India, you have Punjab, Haryana, Uttar Pradesh, and then you have, in the south, you have Gujarat, and then touching to Maharashtra, and north, you have Jammu. So, this entire spread is is what, uh, uh, you know, comes under the realm of Harappan civilization. So, we know the spread. But, uh, as you asked, we don't know the core, uh, so therefore the site of mehrgarh is very important because so far it's the earliest dated site for the neolithic right in the subcontinent and the site of uh, pirak nosharo and mehrgarh all in the same region together te- uh, gives uh, you know tell us the story of this evolution from neolithic to bronze age so we have a type site as of now An example, a classical example of the evolution of culture from Neolithic to Bronze Age. But we also have site of Birana on the eastern domain, which is also dated to about 6000 BCE, right? So we, as of now, are unable to pinpoint as to where was the core and then the diffusion has happened. We don't know exactly. We don't know whether it was from Indus to the other eastern region, or from the Indian part, or from the Ghaggar, or from Haryana, Punjab, or from there it has gone. We don't know that yet. I think a lot of scholars will argue that it is on the Indus, and then again you have scholars who say that we don't. Uh, we think it's on the Indian domain. So again, these uh, because of the divide of the two countries, a lot of uh, our shared history is also divided our shared resources are also divided. So we are unable to come together and find a middle ground and find where exactly was the core area.
2: I'd like to ask therefore, Aditya, about urbanisation and urbanism. Is it fair to say that this is one of the key things that is often associated with the Harappan civilization? the emergence of these great urban centres? What do we know about them?
3: Uh, yeah so urban centers are one of the characteristics of harappan civilization and that's the reason why it is a civilization right because of the cities rise of the cities and uh, there are five major cities we have harappa mohenjodaro uh, Ganveriwala. Uh, we have Dholavira and then we have Rakhigari. These are five big cities, but other than that, we also have Lothal. we have many, many other cities uh, who are not as big, Banavali, who are not as big as these five major cities, but they have these urban characteristics, right? So basically, urbanization in Harappan civilization means you have uh, town planning. You would follow either a grid system where the settlement is divided into grids, And the streets will intersect at right angle, right? There will be drainage, proper sanitary, you know, system, drainage system, which is not existent before and sort of disappears afterwards as well. Then you have the stratification of the settlement. You have the citadel. Low town, middle town, all of these terms, of course, they are adopted uh, from the Egyptian and uh, uh, sorry, Roman civilization and other sites, which Wheeler and other archaeologists were also investigating in 1930s and 40s. But then yet yeah, the, so there is an elevated area, which is Citadel, then you, you have lesser elevated uh, area of the settlement, which is middle town, and then you have lower town. And then you have trade organization. So we do see the trade and craft Production Actually, craft production plays an important role uh, uh, in the rise of Harappan civilization because it's not just, it's not a simple thing. They are producing beads, but they are getting material from different parts. They have this whole system in place uh, for making these beads. And these beads are going as far in different parts of the country in the contemporary civilization. And in fact, if uh, I'm sure you would have read River King's the opening was the Carnelian bead. The Carnelian bead is coming from Kambad in Gujarat and the antiquity of craft or lapidary in Kambad goes as far back to 4th millennium BCE, which is to Harappan period. So we know that Harappans were using the area of Kambad and the region around Kambad for exploiting agate and Carnelian, manufacturing beads and distributing it not only to the Western civilization but also probably to the contemporary cultures as well. in in other parts of the subcontinent. And this is just one part, you know. And uh, I recently wrote about cotton in one of my columns and cotton as well. So they domesticated cotton and that cotton reached, uh, you know, uh, to different parts of the contemporary civilization as early as 5000 BCE. Recently, a study was undertaken at a site in Israel where they found the cotton fiber which of the subspecies which is from Indian uh, subcontinent that was domesticated by the Harappans. And the date was about 7,200 years ago, which is about roughly 5,000 BCE. So they're trading the exporting goods. We know that copper was also been uh, imported from Oman, not only exported. We are also importing copper from uh, Oman and also vice versa. So copper is going both ways. We know that uh, lapis is coming from Badaksha. The trade, this matrix that is created by the Harappans. of course, they didn't build pyramids but then they did this the a lot of wood now we have uh, inscriptional evidence coming from the contemporary civilization of course the Indus script is not deciphered but the scripts of the Western contemporary civilization that is that are deciphered now they tell us that wood is also coming from the Indian subcontinent So we have cotton, wood, carnelian, perhaps other organic material as well. Traces of which we have not found as yet are not present in the archaeological data. So that trade has sort of given rise to this urbanization. So as economics goes, the more money you have, you can build cities because now you need to organize your craft is no longer just making it because you have no other work to do other than, you know, have time in between going to the fields and at home. Or women are doing a lot of work as well, you know. We know that textile production, pottery production, women are helping out a lot and they have the equal share in the production unit as well. But if you look at it, it's not just a hobby. It's not just doing it for just selling it to the nearest settlement. Now it has come to the level where they have to now produce more so they can sell it to the contemporary civilization that go beyond Indus, you know. So they take their ships and then they go to Oman and then they cross and then they go all the way to Mesopotamia, Egypt. So because of that, they need this organization within the society and that happens even today you need some sort of authority also in place you need to have stratification you need to have so your society becomes complex and that is what we see in the integration phase of the mature Harappan phase of the civilization.
2: It's so cool to hear about those extensive trade networks and how they're connected to the emergence of these great urban centres, the Harappan civilisation. And for you, Disha, who I know you've done a lot of work at one of those key centres which you highlighted at Rakigari, but it must be really interesting as an archaeologist working at that site, as you're excavating these buildings, you're learning more about that sophisticated town layout, you're seeing the industrial area and the residential area and so on, and then uncovering artefacts and then looking at these artifacts and figuring out from how far away they might have come from, and then being able to deduce more about these extensive trade connections that the Harappan civilization had.
3: Yeah, it's really amazing. So, a few years ago, about seven, eight years ago, I participated in an excavation of another Harappan site. And that was my first excavation about eight years ago, I think, eight, nine years ago. It was a site near India Pakistan border in Rajasthan called Binjar. It was a very small site and we know that this is not an urban settlement for sure. And when we started excavating the site and I remember in my trench, I came across mud bricks and Harappan are not just building structures out of stones. Stones is used in one part. So here is another thing. So Harappans know that the resources that are available. So people, they know the resources available to them. In Kutch in Gujarat. they know that stone is largely available. So they will not exhaust their resources in getting baked bricks or sun-dried bricks. They will rather go for the stones that is readily available. So Dholavira, it's built of the stones that is available in the Visnari. And then in the region of Rajasthan, uh, that is Kalibanga, rakhigadi and all the major centers in, on the banks of Ghagar, which is going all the way to Pakistan, becomes Hakra. There you see that. Because of the climatic condition, the temperature sort of rises during summer. It becomes very, very hot, right? So they need mud structures to combat heat. So they are building their structures uh, with sun-dried bricks. So baked bricks are only used for drainage... Or for any special purposes or to build wells, right? So, they know the purpose because why should they spend uh, their resources on baking bricks where they know that that's not going to help them combat heat and they are going to plaster those, uh, you know, baked bricks with mud anyways. So, rather just build good sun-dried bricks and build amazing structures. So, at Rakigari, Kalibanga and other sites in that region, you'll find a lot of big bricks. But whereas, most of the and Harappa which are on the banks of Indus and Indus is known for its floods right it's a notorious river so you need more strong building material which can help you combat seasonal floods. So they are using baked bricks. So if you see the span and the spread of the civilization, you see that they are very much in tune with their environment. They know what to do and what measures to take to sort of make their lives more comfortable in the given region. So uh, coming back to your question, like when I was... Excavating that site called Binjar on the banks of uh, Gagar uh, near the Indo-Pakistan border, I come across a lot of structures, you know, floors made up of these well-lavigated, well-built, uh, sun-dried bricks. So they were so hard to even break. Like, at the moment, you recognize mud bricks. If you see more if you can start identifying bricks, you are done. You've won the half battle. And I remember I found one tank. I found multiple herds. And in the adjoining trenches, in the trenches next to my trenches, they have again started finding a lot of herds, a lot of furnaces. And after three seasons of excavation, we came to the conclusion that this particular, this settlement, this small ruler settlement was for, was, only for copper manufacturing. So, this was a craft person's colony, metallurgist's colony. So, we found slags, we found uh, copper finish artifacts, we found a raw material, we found a whole system, a large number of short weights. So, we know that this particular settlement was only for that, you know, and they were manufacturing because it's also closer to Sin. They might be getting copper from different regions, perhaps from Oman or from K3, which is in Rajasthan. And then they're manufacturing and then they're giving to other settlements. So see, even today this happens. And I'm talking as, you know, I'm living in a city, a New Delhi or any other major city. You see that the produce is coming from the satellite settlements, the settlements that are spread around the major center. So that very phenomenon goes as far as back as Harappan civilization. So that was my first introduction to the craft aspect of the Harappans. And then, of course, at Rakigari, I got to excavate the very mound, which is known for lapidary. So it was, again, an amazing experience, actually.
2: Well, before we go on to lapidary and a bit more on Rakigari, and we'll focus in on that industry stuff in a minute, but that's really interesting what you highlighted there, Adisha. So you have these great centers, as you mentioned, Harappa and Rakigari and so on, and then the evidence is revealing you have these... Industrial craft settlements. Were there also lots of? I'm guessing if this civilization is still centered on agriculture, was the lion's share, the largest portion of the population, were they more spread out in more rural settlements? Do we know much about those too?
3: Yeah, we now know that uh, Harappans were not all urban settlers or traders or craft oriented people. There were a lot of pastoralists. And agropatialists as well. So we have settlements which were undertaking agriculture. And also, I want to point out that no matter what craft you're doing, or even if it's an industrial center, agriculture plays an important role even today in Indian subcontinent. So even if you, ha- you have a business on the side, you will still have one uh, aspect, to do. you will still have land where you will have people cultivating that area so uh, agriculture and other uh, you know aspects other professions they all go hand in hand in our country and especially if i talk about states like punjab and haryana which are known as the wheat basket of the country even today if one son has gone abroad or gone to the city working Father or uncles or another brother will always be in the village or near the fields and they all be cultivating throughout the year. So that is something which is still integral part of Indian society. And that must have been the case with the Harappans as well. So Harappans, when they became urban, I'm sure they have not left agriculture at all. There has to be a part of the community which is, who are still producing because remember, there's evidence of granary in many, many centers. So they are producing, they are cultivating, right? And then uh, they are storing for the population. And I'm sure the surplus is coming from these satellite cities as well. So we have enough evidence. And also, I just want to point out, going beyond Harappan also, you have Chalcolithic settlements as well, the contemporary, the non-Harappan settlements. So they are agriculturists and pastoralists as well. So I'm sure there is a lot of connection and there's a lot of exchange happening, which has been overlooked by archaeologists so far.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo.
2: these people who are living in these urban centers or whatever hierarchy there was they are bringing in agriculture bringing in food and storing it in these centers and then i'm guessing almost kind of as you said like as a center then to dish out to the community in whatever way that was happening thousands of years ago do we know much therefore about perhaps political structural hierarchy how these urban centers related to those outlying satellite settlements which supplied them really
3: Sadly, the script is not deciphered. So we know that there is hierarchy, there is stratification of society. But we can't pinpoint or tell you exactly with surety as to what sort of system was in place. It's my belief as well, and I think scholars like Jonathan Markinoyer and others will also have also agreed to this, that the so-called priest-king we now know, the figurine, not a king, not a priest. We, the, the name was given by John Marshall back in 1920s, where the Indian society was very different or perhaps were perceived in a very different way by the officials who were in charge back then, right? So we can't really always take examples from our present to try and understand the past. We don't know exactly, but I know for sure there has to be some authority in place. Otherwise, the system will not work you have to manage a large area or you have to manage craft you have to manage a lot of things so there has to be a system in place there there is stratification in the society it could be based on um, your job description or what you do because that is what could be because that's all we can find out from archaeological data as of now
2: I mean, that priest-king figure, I guess we've got to mention him a bit because that is such an iconic piece of art that has become associated with Harappa, I guess, hasn't it? Could it therefore, potentially, if it's not, you know, this priestly figure, could it potentially be a god, a deity? Do we know much about that religious aspect or is that also kind of a bit still shrouded in mystery?
3: The reason why uh, it was termed as priest-king was because the facial features of the sculpture, you know, the person is closed eyes, his eyes are shut and he sort of seems to be in a meditation mode or something. So that's why it was termed as a priest or somebody who is into these, you know, religious practices. And the reason why it was said to be a king because of the headgear, the headpiece. On the sculpture, and also there is a cloth wrapped around on the left or the right shoulder, I'm not sure, but there is a cloth wrapped around with trifoil uh, marks. And so, and it's a very small sculpture, and it's made up of state iron. State iron is expensive, so it was thought that this person has to be of some authority or belong to an economically well off. Society And back then, Marshall termed it as priest-king. It could be a person who was of a noble class or maybe of high, belonged to a high layer of the hierarchy perhaps or stratification. Of, we don't know exactly because the context of the sculpture is missing from the early reports. Because, you know, we don't know exactly at what was the exact context of the sculpture. And in context, I mean, what sort of features were found next to this particular sculpture? Was it in a house complex or otherwise? That is sort of missing in the report if you read back the report by Marshall and also by Watts when it was excavated. So we don't know that. And similar is the case with another very iconic sculpture, which is the Bronze Age figurine of Dancing Girl, termed as Dancing Girl. Uh, so I, I believe that it's, she's not dancing and it's not a dancing girl. And dancing girl is not an appropriate term. And similarly for the priest king. But yes, we don't have these answers yet.
2: Yet. Well, there we go. Well, let's keep focusing, therefore, on other artifacts uh, from the Harappa. And if we focus on the work that you and the team have been doing at Rakigari recently, you mentioned a word associated with that industrial part of Rakigari, which is lapidary. Now, what is lapidary?
3: So lapidary is uh, manufacturing objects from stone. These are semi precious stone, right? So Kambad in Gujarat on the Gulf of Cambay is known for lapidary activity. That means they make beads out of the or agates, uh, stone, jasper, turquoise, lapis. So uh, because the area around Kambad and parts of Gujarat are rich resource of uh, they are rich in agate reserves. And Carnelian reserves. Therefore, it's easy to get these uh, raw material from there to Kambad and to manufacture in Kambad. So we know that lapidary main center was in Kambad. But now going from Gujarat to Haryana, it's a long stretch, right? So if a with population or people of uh, living in Rakigadi, they want beads or they want for their own consumption of their their own use, they want beads. They can't be going all the way to Kambada all the time because see, this is thousands of years ago and the inland uh, trade network and, and how they were commuting from one place to the other we know the waterway, how they were channelizing rivers and all of that. But we don't know exactly what route they followed inland, right? So going from Kambat to Rakhigadi would have been very difficult. So therefore, a lot of sites, even Dhola uh, Lothal, Rakhigadi, many sites will have these small units of manufacturing because they have a lot of population they have to cater to and there must be a lot of travelers who were coming by and you have satellite settlements also. So many of these major centers had their own production unit. Now, I don't know for sure whether they were getting a semi-finished products and they were sort of polishing it and you know giving it the final touches or they were getting raw material. Now, So when we started excavating Rakigari last season, the excavation was uh, headed by Dr. Manjul, S.K. Manjul. He's uh, with ASI. is Joint Director, General of ASI. Uh, and uh, the team, we decided to excavate mound number 1. That is R. J. 1. So now there are seven mounts at Rakigiri. Rakigiri is very big. Uh, many scholars now believe that Rakigari m- may be, uh, you know, la- uh, might be larger than Mojadaro in size. But we don't have peer-reviewed paper published. So why if Till then, we can only just speculate. So, there's nothing written in words as of now about this particular aspect. But, anyways, Rakhikari is one of the largest sites. There are seven mounds, right? So, in Mount Number no. One, it was in the previous excavation, the first excavation in 1998. Uh, when this particular area, Mount Number no. One, was excavated, they found a furnace and they found a lot of debitage carnelian, agate, chert debitage and near the furnace they found a pot which had over 200 300 beads in that particular pot and there were some finished beads some semi finished beads so looking at all of these evidence and they have found a lot of uh, bone tools a lot of uh, you know uh, stones which were used as polishers so looking at a lot of evidence uh, the uh, the initial excavator of Rakigari labeled this particular mound as the san- center of lapidary So it was known as a craft area Uh, and although they have excavated only a small area of the site, uh, the evidence was strong enough to support that particular label. So when we started excavating, our objective was not exactly to look at that. Uh, Of course, it sort of comes in the package, right? But our idea was to look at the settlement plan. Because Rakigari is so big, and we know that Dholavira and other sites like Banavali, they have the, uh, although they follow this traditional Harappan things like, you know, the brick sides are same and then their uh, streets will be uh, intersecting at right angle, but there are certain aspects that they altered as well. Like, for instance, Banavali, uh, the shape of the settlement was different. Okay, so it didn't had streets intersecting at right angle. It had streets which were sort of in a radial pattern, like the rays of the sun. So there was a center of the, uh, at the center there is a city center or something. And from there, the streets are radiating in different directions, cardinal directions. So Manavali sort of opened eyes of scholars and archaeologists that look in Harappan, we don't always have to go by the book there are certain things which are out of syllabus also. We need to open our mind and go. Uh, when we are excavating, we need to sort of keep that in our mind. And looking at Dholavira also, you have reservoirs around the settlement because, you know, they have to manage water. There's scarcity water in catch even today. So uh, looking at all these aspects, looking at different excavations, we wanted to know what exactly is the characteristic of Rakigari. You know, that was the purpose of the entire team. And I had many, many conversations with our director uh, just before we started excavating because we needed to be on the same page. Our idea was not to just collect antiquities or collect artifacts or objects or, or pottery. Our objective was to understand how the settlement is A, interside and intraside connected, B, what is the nature of this town planning. Because the Rakhi Gadi was excavated in bits and pieces. There is no continuous excavation uh, as in the case, you know, if you see the example of Harappa Daro, there is continuous excavation for few field seasons. Even Mehergar, it was excavated for over 10 years. Um, you know, Dholavira was excavated for 10 years. So when you have continuous excavation, you know where to pick up from in the next field season. But when you have scattered excavation, it's very difficult to pick up the pieces and the information sort of gets lost in the translation because you there's a lot of unpublished data also in the middle so you have to fill in that gap and then move forward so our plan was that and when we started excavating i would find these small artifacts like small debitage finished beads uh, raw material as well a lot of polished stones and along with that i start i ended up finding a major street Uh, which and and actually I was excavating the street and I found out after two weeks into excavation that this is not a pit this is a street because you know by then I was able to trace the uh, two walls so there are two walls on the opposite end and I was in the middle. So for me to reach on the opposite side of, you know, on these walls, it sort of took me two weeks or something. So once we have expanded the excavation, and at the end of the excavation, we found that the walls are lined with these big, thick, mud brick, sun-baked brick walls, which are about one meter wide, okay? And they are intersecting each other at right angle, and these walls are enclosing the settlement area. So, on the either side of the wall, so there are two walls on the either side, you have structures. And when we took the vertical trench, we found that this street is right from the early phase of Harappan. So, when we look at the stratigraphy, we know this was about, uh, four, uh, the deposit of the street is about 4 meters in thickness. And then there were soakage pits at corners of the street. So, not one street, but at every corner, there is soakage pit. So that was the first season uh, where we left at, and in the other mound we excavated, mound number two, uh, three, sorry, and that mound was never excavated due to many reasons. And uh, Dr. Manjul decided to excavate that mound, and when he excavated the mound, they found a baked brick wall which was about ten, eleven meters in running. Now, as I mentioned earlier also, this is a reason where they will choose mud bricks than baked bricks. And baked bricks, they will only use where, you know, they have to build uh, well, drainage or, you know, if you can afford, you can buy it and you can use it. So in this particular mound, and this mound was larger in terms of the thickness, not the spread. So mound number one was spread, but it didn't have thickness it had about 7 meter uh, deposit. Mar number 3, 2 and 4, they are quite high in terms of the thickness is quite elaborate, about 18 meters. If I go by the previous data, about 16 to 18 meters. So, man number 3 was also about 13 to 14 meters high, right? So, we started excavating at the slope. And they found a lot of big brick structures. There was a drainage as well. So the first season was all about streets and drains, really, uh, for us. <laughs> so, so but what was interesting was the at the same time period. If you look at the same context, if you look at or the same MSL, how two different sides had the settlement pattern was a little different. But the first one season was not enough to understand that completely. So we excavated, obviously, the second time as well.
2: Well, it sounds like, therefore, the amount of archaeology that is coming out of Rakhigari, the amount you must be learning about this early stage of the Harappan civilization, and as you say, the materials that they have, the structure of the towns, how they're not all identical in their urban layout, and, you know, the connections that they had, and I guess... must be also looking at other things such as pottery, and I know there's terracotta, some quite rare metals as well. Is there gold as well? There's a wealth of artefacts that are starting to be unearthed, which bodes really exciting for future seasons to learn more about Rakigari and its place in the whole of the Harappan civilization.
3: Yeah, we really need to excavate more, and we need to continue excavating. See what, as I mentioned, if we stop excavating, another team picks up. Uh, There's sort of this gap in research, that is very difficult to fill in. So uh, we need to excavate the site for a few seasons, at least five seasons. And I'm just saying it's minimum five seasons because the site is really big. We also excavate the burial site of Rakhi Gari. And it was never reported by any of the scholars earlier, but the burial, which was of mature Harappan, was on early Harappan settlement. So early Harappan abandoned that area and have gone to where the big mounds are and that area which was abandoned by early settlements was used as a burial ground. So this particular piece of information is also very interesting because this shows that the early Harappan was also spread in a large area at Rakigari, not just mature Harappan so there are a lot of research questions that are coming up, our objective is still the same, we are just, you know, as we excavate we are coming closer to our objective we are still aiming at understanding how these different mounds that we in the 21st century have to, you know given them numbers, we have numbered them, how they were connected, so inter-site relation, intra site relation is very important the settlement relationship is very important to understand uh, we don't know uh, you know we know in Dholavira there were gates you know to enter citadel and all of that we don't know anything about Rakhe and also the challenge is that there, there is a huge modern population on the mound so it's very difficult to uh, uh do the work when a, a large chunk of the site is under modern habitation
2: Well, let's see, therefore, what happens in the years ahead. Disha, this has been brilliant. I have so many questions I could ask still. I know we haven't even got Sinoli and the Chariots. That might have to be for another episode. I mean, lastly, because we do really have to wrap up now with time. Quickly, I've got to ask me, do we know what ultimately happens to the Harappan civilization?
3: About 2000 BC, a lot of changes started to happen. We know that the trade matrix that I was talking about is becoming very weak. It's disrupted. It could be because of a lot of reasons. Uh, environmental changes is one. The change in the political situation of the Western civilization could be one. The changes there also affect the trade, right? Because they are the ones who are demanding these products. That could be one. But the weakening of the trade matrix sort of led to a lot of change in the settlement. Now people started going back to the localization era and also in the Ghaggar Hakra we know that the environmental conditions changed rapidly around this time and uh, uh, people started abandoning the settlements right about 2000 to 1900 BCE and that is the reason why in the Ghaggar Hakra region we don't have late Harappan. We have only mature Harappan. So we don't have the deurbanized phase of Harappan in that region because they're shifting to different places where there are more resources or also job opportunities also perhaps so we have uh, some idea about what's happening in the late Harappan period but we really need to focus on you know what is the connection between the late Harappan and the other cultures as well the cultures that followed or perhaps the contemporary cultures and I think to answer these questions we need to look at the contemporary cultures right from the mature Harappan period.
2: Well, as you've highlighted very well throughout the episode as well, you know, this culture, this civilization, it wasn't living in isolation. And it's really interesting. Once again, we've gone full circle with those trade connections and the importance of those connections too. Disha, this has been absolutely brilliant. As mentioned, I wish I could ask more questions, but we need to wrap up now. And it just goes to me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun talking about, uh, you know, how civilization with you.
2: Well there you go, there was Dr. Disha Aluwalia talking all things the Harappan civilization. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Last things from me, if you have enjoyed the episode and you've been enjoying the ancients so far, you want to help us out when well, you know what you can do. You can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. It really helps us as we continue to grow the ancients and take it to even greater heights. But that's enough from me. I'm off to explore the ancient Nabataean Center. Of Hegra this morning, and I will see you in the next episode. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project,